Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. Bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. I mean, it's just bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter War on Drugs, episode 318. How are you, Papa Bear? Doing okay. <laughs> I'll never get used to you that. Haven't given me a new nick- you haven't given me a new nickname for you yet, so I'm going with that. I understand. I'll, I'll smoke on it. I mean, I'll think about it. It's, get, it's going to be your nickname all through <laughs> Europe. Oh, speaking of which, I better order a box of cigars yeah. for you to bring with you. It's been two months since Chrissy and I have had a cigar. Two months. Oh, my God. Are you, are you going to get high? Yeah. Are you Not high, but are you going to get uh, lightheaded when you have your first cigar? Sometimes I do if I have No, I doubt it. Yeah. But I honestly don't know when we're going to have a chance to smoke over there anyway with Fox around. But anyway, what are the, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Okay. Yeah. So, in our last episode, we started talking about how the beatniks led to the hippies and uh, this explosion in interest in drugs in the 60s. Just Harry Anslinger retired in 1962, and then drugs really took off after that. Right. And, you know, I'm sure he was sitting around going, see? See what happens? (laughs) I retire. Boom. Everyone starts doing drugs. (laughs) Now, uh, towards the end of the 60s, uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, when he, as president, uh, put together something called the Commission on Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice, or the CLIADGE, <laughs> uh, was its acronym, was it? which was not the world's great, no. uh, greatest acronym. Um, you, did you read about that, the CLIADGE? No, please tell me. It's fantastic. I actually downloaded the report and read it, all 342 pages of it. Um, so he put, it was 19 uh, commissioners mm-hmm. that he had, appointed in 1967, to study the American criminal justice system and produce a report on what to do. They had hundreds of people working on it, um, took him about a year, I think, to come up with a report, and it was described as the most comprehensive evaluation of crime and crime control in the United States at the time that had ever been done. And it suggested a huge range of reforms across all aspects of crime. Mm -hmm. Now, a couple of its recommendations were interesting. Number one, it recommended getting rid of mandatory sentencing for drug use. Wow. Wow. It argued that marijuana was a mild hallucinogen and that there was no evidence that it led to violence or crime. Yeah, because I know that later on, Carter is going to say the punishment shouldn't be worse than what the drug can actually do to you. So it sounds like, again... With this research, someone's actually thinking things through. And this was a White House report in 1967. I'm impressed. That said, marijuana, it's not, not that bad. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Right. 
It shot holes in the argument that marijuana was a gateway drug. Wow. It said, look, the vast majority of marijuana users never go on to harder drugs, so how can that be true? And I was like, yeah, that's a fucking good point. <laughs> They're just <laughs> chilling point, out. Man. They're just chilling. Yeah. yeah. So um, that was some of its positions on drugs. It also re- uh, recommended much tighter gun control laws and preventing the sale of military-type weapons. Wow. No wonder we've never heard of this. Some of those uh, recommendations made it into LBJ's Gun Control Act of 1968, which we talked about on our Mm -hmm. gun control series. But um, the drug law reform that it recommended didn't get very far, mostly because Richard Nixon took the White House in 1969. I guess it didn't fit with his preconceived notions. And what he campaigned on. So Nixon, as I said in the towards the end of the last episode, America. Uh, if you if you watch the television or read the newspapers in in the sixties in America, America was falling apart at the seams. Um, you had uh, civil rights protesters. You had hippies protesting the Vietnam War and just capitalism in general, and telling people to uh, turn on, tune in, and drop out, as Timothy Leary said. Mm-hmm. Um, there was cops uh, and National Guard violence against students on campuses. Kent State. Um, then you had, yeah, Kent State. Then you had the the, the JFK, MLK, um, RLK murders. Uh, RLK? Was, was, he, was he an L? Robert. Robert Kennedy? Robert? Robert? FK. RFK. Yeah. Um, yeah. You had uh, the Marilyn Manson thing. You had Marilyn fucking Charles Manson thing. You had uh, Altamont. Yeah, it's the, 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 there's a lot of lot of lot of stuff going on. So yeah. Nixon campaigned on uh, fear, and you know part of his uh, uh, campaign pitch was that the the Johnson administration had taken this namby pamby. Uh, great society vision of, look, there are root causes to all of these problems and we need to fix the root causes. Uh. Nixon was like, fuck <laughs> that bullshit, hippie, bleeding heart crap. Right. Um, he, he appealed to the what he called the silent majority of Americans who were conservative, who disliked the, the, the hippies and the counterculture and the anti-war demonstrators. They wanted... To make America great again, as it was right. when they had segregation. Let's fuck it. Let's go back to slaves. That's that's when we were really great. Right. Let's go back to that. We were happy. He um, was going to be the law and so, order president for America. Does that sound familiar? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen we've seen a whole list of those come ever since. Yeah. So. In order to pull that off, though, um, he had to convince Americans that. People are poor and violent and using drugs not because of huge social pressures Mm -hmm. that could be corrected by studying and fixing these underlying causes, but because they were bad people who deserve to be punished. That was the pitch. Now, it's it's interesting to point out that, that leading up to Nixon's campaign in the late 60s, most media analysts... 
including most Republicans, uh, like strategists, thought there was no fucking way that the Republicans could win the White House. Right. Um, after, you know, JFK was so popular and then he got assassinated and there was all this outpouring of love and then Bobby got assassinated and everyone loved him. Johnson was popular with most people in the community, even though he ramped up Vietnam, but he tried to hide that. He lied about it. Right. <laughs> Kept saying they were getting out when they were actually ramping it up, but they didn't know that at the time. It wasn't until Pentagon Papers came out that they started to realise that. Um, and he was doing the whole Great Society thing. Very popular. There was no way. But they figured it out, and it was by, you know, making out all of the 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 the, the protesters to be bad people. Jeez. And again, like you were like we've been saying in the last couple of shows, of a certain age, white America believes this, they wanna believe it, they're willing audience, and they're going to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. In fact, they're gonna meet Nixon halfway in this this version of what of what the truth is. Well, as you said at the end of our last episode, Nixon picked up Harry Anslinger's um, fear-mongering about drugs mm. and it's all driven by, you know, Mexicans and the darkies and, and, and uh, the rapists and they're violent. And <clears throat> he ran with that and said, well, it's not just the Mexicans and the, the blacks, it's everybody who uses drugs is just an evil, bad person. Everyone who's protesting, trying to change things is um, evil and bad and probably working for the commies. Right. <laughs> Um, and you know it's 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 harder to demonize somebody who's stealing to feed their family, but it's easy to demonize drug taking as just being escapist and pleasure driven. Right. It's not about a spiritual experience. It not, it's not about an alternative set of values and priorities. They're just uh, lazy. lazy uh yeah dropouts yeah lazy lazy useless good for nothing bums uh he was helped uh by the media in this in uh one example he is in october 1967 readers digest published an article that said which is i think what um in that last clip i had timothy leary he made a uh, joke about readers digest this is the article he was referring to they said, our opinion leaders have gone too far in promoting the doctrine that when a law is broken, society, not the criminal, is to blame. Because mm. you, you've made this point before that um, people who are trying to do the right thing can go too far and excuse away or explain things. And then obviously people like Nixon can go too far on the other way and just see everything that just only to use punishment for every wrong, no matter why or no matter how big or small the consequences are. And and that's, that's the type of person that Nixon is, or at least that's what he's espousing to these people. And they're going to eat it up and they're going to vote for him. Yeah. Yeah, so Nixon said, look, the the, companies, the country has got to stop looking for root causes and instead put its money into increasing the police presence and cracking down. <sighs> Swift and sure retribution, immediate and decisive force must be the first response. 
Now, the article in Reader's Digest that I was quoting was actually written by Richard Nixon. Um, what? This is, uh, yeah, he wrote the article. Oh, my God. It was uh, his, the lead-up to his uh, presidency. Oh. Now, um, Newsweek reported that uh, the age of US drug users is dropping rapidly, sometimes reaching down into elementary schools. What? Just uh, you know, a, a fairly typical news report of the day about drugs. Offered no data <laughs> to back that up. Okay. Uh, posted photos of junkies overdosing in Harlem. Quoted principals from schools saying they'd found young teenagers smoking smoking pot in school bathrooms. But again, provided really no evidence to back that up. Life magazine had a story that said drug abuse and marijuana, once confined to the shadowy underworld of Junkie Row, are now very much in the open. By the end of 1967, one survey found that half of all Americans said they'd turn in their own kids to the police if they found them using drugs. That's insane. That's the Stasi. Yeah. I value law and order more than my own child. Well, if my child's using drugs, they're obviously a latent criminal. <laughs> Rapist, murderer, um, but, but possibly they're a Mexican. <laughs> There's a good chance what? because their dad might be Mexican. But the mm. point is, they're not turning them in to get them help. They're turning them in to make them stop what they're doing. It sounds like no sympathy, no compassion, no understanding, just punishment to get them to stop. Hmm. Stop using that mind-altering substance while I stand here smoking my cigarettes, which are good for you, and drinking my third gin and tonic of the night. Just to get through living with you. And taking valley. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, LBJ knew that he was a target for being soft on crime, so he tried to get J. Edgar Hoover to add drug enforcement to the FBI Hoover again said, no, not going to do it. So Johnson took drug enforcement away from the Treasury, which is where the FBN had been situated for all this time, Mm -hmm. the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and he, he yanked the regulatory powers away from the Food and Drug Administration and combined them to create a new agency in the Justice Department called the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs the BNDD. Oh, my God. He's good. Which was the yeah. predecessor of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Right. And, and uh, I don't want to get ahead of you, but there's a memo that gets sent to Nixon on June 1969. Um, just to let me know, and I can read that out. But just to show you the advice that Nixon is getting and the things that he is willing to do to make all his campaign promises true. So June 1969, memo to the president, it says, Herewith is a report of your Marijuana and Dangerous Drugs Task Force. The task force recommends that the Mexican government be forced into a program of defoliation of the marijuana plants using borrowed or leased equipment from the United States by by commencing a campaign of strict enforcement and customs inspection at the border, including controls of small plane flights. So again, so the, uh, the, the Americans know 
to a degree where it's coming from, somewhere in Mexico. And that's going to change later, but that's for later. So what we should do is literally use our economic and military power to pressure the government into destroying these crops. And of course, you have to use chemicals and things that are not good for the humans that live around them. But the point is, they are willing to do this to break, I'm sure this is breaking international laws, to force the Mexican government to to go along with whatever Nixon's White House wants. And they want a full war on drugs, on marijuana. And and who wrote that memo? I don't know. Don't tell me it was Nixon. That that memo was written by G. Gordon Liddy. Oh, fuckface. Gotcha. Yeah, I got more on him later on. Okay. So back back to Johnson. Um, So Johnson... Uh, is trying to, or does, build up this new department, um, the BNDD, to go after drugs, um, which made him unpopular with a lot of people on the left. Um, You know, they they were saying, look, federal police and prosecutors have always answered to separate authorities, just as they do in state and local governments. The FBI, being part of justice, was the only exception. Now he's putting... Mm -hmm more enforcers drug police in the same department as the country's prosecutors. There should be a separation there between the cops and the prosecutors. Now you're throwing them all into the Justice Department. Um, So that made him unpopular. And Nixon obviously was so unpopular that he ended up not running for another term. Um, He he, he declined to run in the the 60s. You mean Johnson. You said Nixon. You mean Johnson. Fuck Johnson. That's fine. Just want to make sure. Johnson, Johnson, Johnson. Thank you for picking me up. Yeah. Now, um, Nixon knew that he couldn't campaign on Vietnam. A, because the country was split down the middle. Uh, B, because he was probably going to ramp it up anyway. Um, so he couldn't campaign on, I'm going to get us out of Vietnam. He knew yeah. that people were scared of change. They were scared of the hippies and the rockin' and the rollin' and the civil rights and the darkies <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. So he gave them an out. You know, people uh, protest not because of underlying problems, but because they're just bad people that are high on drugs. Oh. It sounds like he's got just one answer for everything. Yeah, I was the right answer too, as it turns out, for his election chances. He said he stood for the forgotten Americans who go to work and pay their taxes and support their schools and churches. Two months before the election, he gave a speech at Disneyland. He said, as I look over the problems in this country, I see one that stands out particularly, the problem of narcotics. So I'm sorry, the Nixon ride would be the scariest ride at Disney World if I were to go there. Where's my, where's my Nixon quote? It'd be a wax figure of Nixon talking to you. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. There you go. That's that's all his ride would be, him saying that over and over again. Well, him sticking his robot dick in your mouth and saying, well, if the president does it, well, just what you were, not illegal. Your quote from him a second ago, that's right out That's right out of Trump when Trump said, uh, the, the great unheard, or, you know, I hear you. So... Again, just uh, these guys have got their finger on the pulse of a certain segment of society, and they know what to say. Yeah, but they all do that. That's true. Every politician but since some, Nixon has said the same thing. Yeah, some, some do it better than others, but you're right. It's, it's a standard part of the playbook. Yeah, certainly is now. Yeah. Um, 
So the federal uh, government at the time didn't have much of a role in law and order. So this was the problem. He campaigned on a law and order ticket. Mm -hmm. But the federal government didn't have much to do with that. It was mainly a state and local issue. The federal government only had responsibility for interstate crime. The mafia, white-collar fraud, national security, smuggling, crimes that crossed state lines. Mm -hmm. So after he gets elected, Nixon's top guys, names that people may have heard, John Dean, John Mitchell, John Ehrlichman. Apparently he didn't have to be called John to work for Nixon, but it helped. <laughs> as well as a guy called Don Santarelli, who's a lawyer who first came up with the idea of being tough on crime as part of the – and he's still around, Santarelli. Wow. He's, uh, he's out there working as a lawyer. He's old now, but he's still out there. Jeez. They cooked up the idea to make drugs something the feds could go after in a, in a hard way because drugs were most almost entirely imported into the country. Mm-hmm. Protecting borders was a federal responsibility and drugs usually moved across state lines, ah. so they decided they could go after drugs and, and, and make a case for that. And they were going to start with the one location where the White House could quickly do something, which was D.C., where the federal government actually is in charge of law and order. Mm-hmm. So they said, look, we'll start in D.C., we'll, in, we'll increase the number of cops, um, and then we'll be able to say, well, look how well that worked, let's do it on a larger scale. Now, as you say, the other border that they tried to fix in 1969 was the one with Mexico. The problem was Mexico wasn't shutting down the drug trade coming from their side of the border. The Mexicans kept saying to the U.S. government, Look, you, it's the problems on your side. People keep wanting to buy it. Yeah. If they didn't want to buy it, our guys wouldn't be able to sell it. So why don't you take care of your side? <laughs> yeah, and stop pointing the finger at us. Oh God, good point. That's when um, Gordon Liddy came up with the idea of flying planes uh. into Mexico and spray dusting the marijuana crops with poison without asking the Mexicans. As you say, this would have been illegal. They said, No, no, we won't do that. For now, we'll do that later. That'll be plan B. But uh, they came up with another idea, and this idea was Operation Intercept, and they gave Liddy the job of executing it. Oh, God. Intercept sounds ominous, like a, I don't know, like someone's going to build a wall on the border almost, just a wall of men. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. A wall of men, Yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about it? Uh, no, you go right ahead. I, I, I just had that they, um, I guess they literally searched every car, every vehicle, every plane that came through, but that's just me guessing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Operation Intercept. So apparently before 1969, when you were driving a car from Mexico into the US, um, yeah, you pretty much got waved through. They'd, they'd look at you <laughs> and go, yeah, you look all right. Off you go. Go through. Go through. You're white. You're okay. All of a sudden, they decide they're going to stop and search every car <sighs> that comes from Mexico to the US. Right. They, they threw thousands of more guys at it. Um, and there was also increased surveillance of air and sea traffic. They didn't stop every plane mid-air, obviously, but they had <laughs> radar equipments installed. Um, they're going to try and pay a lot more attention to this. Now, 
there was a mandatory for the cars. It was mandated that every search had to last at least three minutes. Oh my god! Now three minutes uh, doesn't sound very long, but when you have millions of cars going across the border, uh, and and then normally they've just been waved through. In, right. Stopping each one for three minutes uh, is is long enough to piss everybody off. Yeah. So there, there was a ton of complaints, uh, and the Mexican president at the time, Diaz or Da, uh, complained to the U.S. government. They ended up reducing it after ten days, the number that they searched, and then completely abandoning it after about twenty days. God, but. It did scare the fuck out of people that were carrying drugs from Mexico to the US in, in, to such that they stopped doing it. Um, and Jefferson Airplane wrote a song about it. Twins of the trade come to the poet's room Talking about the problems of the leaf And yes, it'll be back soon There used to be times of gold and green Coming up here from Mexico You caught those lyrics, but they're great. What, did they? They say bad. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, but Mexico is under the thumb of a man we called Richard, and he's come to call himself King. But he's a small-headed man, yes. and he doesn't know a thing about how to deal for you. Oh my God, that's what I was going to ask. Small head or small hand, it doesn't matter. Thinking of himself <laughs> as a king, huh? Again, the 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 um, the examples are just lining up. So before there used to be tons of yeah. gold and green coming up here from Mexico, donde esta la planta, mi amigo del sol, which means where is the plant, my friend of the sun. <laughs> so, and again, that's I don't know, that's pretty ballsy for them to just come out and say it. But I have to ask about this border thing, even though it lasted twenty days or whatever. I mean, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but I'm imagining we're getting food from Mexico. That's now sitting there for hours. And if you hire a whole bunch of more guards to do all these inspections, that must have cost a shit ton of money for what turns out to be an absolute fiasco. Yeah, it did in a number of ways, but it was the beginning of things to come. The New York Daily News called it the dropping of a grass curtain. <laughs> I like that. thought that was clever. Um, some of the people trying to get in were required to strip... Oh, yeah. down to the skin for personal inspection. Oh, yeah. Official reports said that in the first week of Operation Intercept, 
1,824 border crosses were strip searched. Wow. Which left 1,978,000 people who crossed with no strip search. Right. Um, most of the 1,824 skin searches, as they were called, uh, produced nothing. There were only 33 arrests. Oh. So 2 million people crossed over during that period, um, and there were 33 arrests made. So as a percentage, that's 1.1.0, 1. 1.0, 1. 1.0, 1.0, 0.0.002%. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, but it did have the effect because people knew this was going on, obviously. So people who normally would have been coming up with a trunk full of weed stopped doing it. It meant that marijuana supplies dried up in the US for a couple of weeks. <laughs> now, of course, what, what, what did people do? Did they give up trying to get high in that period? Of course not. <laughs> According to a doctor running the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic in San Francisco, he had a sudden increase in kids getting strung out on stronger drugs, and he was oh. furious. He, his name was David Smith. He said to reporters, the government line is that the use of marijuana leads to more dangerous drugs. The fact is that the lack of marijuana Word. leads to more dangerous drugs. Well, and again, if I can just add on to that, as, um, there's a stat that I have that, that's for later, but basically $1 spent in prevention is better is is uh, the equivalent of seven dollars spent uh, in punishment, and so like you said, you they went through all that. They caught thirty three people that they had to strip strip search, all that money that they wasted, all that food that was probably spoiled sitting in the hot sun, versus spending a fraction of that taking care of the people who who need or want help in the United States who are addicted and they can't get off of it on their own. But again, that's not what Nixon's all about. That's not what he ran on. That's not what he promised. And that's what he's not trying to deliver. He is coming down hard on all of these people. No, no brains, no thinking, just all balls and testosterone. Sounds like you and me in Vegas. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, in 1969, can you guess the number of Americans who died from legal and illegal drugs combined? Ah, uh, uh, 1916 to both. I, I, I don't know. Um, 15,000. I have no idea. 1,601. Wow. Guess the number of Americans in 1969 who died from cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, 100,000. <laughs> I don't know. 29,866. So a shit ton more than the drugs. <laughs> yes, yeah. literally a shit ton <laughs> more. So that's where that's the state of the problem at the time. Compared to alcohol, uh, drugs were two-tenths of fuck all. I, I have to ask before you go on, again, this makes no sense. This defies logic. And and I'm guessing, and I'm and I'm asking your opinion, but I'm only guessing that because of the origins of marijuana being Mexican or being you know whatever, I don't, I I wonder why there's this. I guess Harry Anslinger is the answer, but just I just why there's at this time in 1969 or whatever that there's still this stigma attached to to marijuana. I guess everybody believes all the stories that Harry was spouting for decades. It's dangerous, it's evil, it, it'll destroy your life, it'll make you do things, kill people, go crazy, whatever. I guess that is still rooted firmly in everybody's psyche. 
Because common sense tells them that alcohol is destroying. You can see people's lives being destroyed from alcohol a hell of a lot more than you see the very few drug people. So how does how does the reality get past the common man in America in 1969? Haven't we just spent 18 hours talking about this? Why are you asking? Isn't that stag- what we've been talking? Where I'm have you been for the last 18 hours, I'm just motherfucker? Staggered. I'm just it's just staggering to me. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. It started off as Harry's attempt to build a department by focusing on something that was easily attached to the darkies and the Mexicans and the Chinese. Right. Um, And then he got the media on board and got the politicians on board and the cops on board because it feathered all of their nests. Oh, we need more police. Oh, we need more funding. Oh, we need this. We need that. And by the way, at the same time, we're stopping the Mexicans and the darkies from voting because we're putting them in jail. Um, The media, uh, you know, uh, ran rampant with it because salacious news sells journalism, yellow yellow journalism, that kind of stuff, scaring people. Um, about mostly the Mexicans and the darkies. Um, then it, it, it turned into this thing where the, 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 the blacks started protesting about how they were being treated and demanding civil rights, so it was easy to make the connection. They were all, they're all you know, the darkies are all high on drugs. That's why they're doing this, ah, overstepping the bounds. Right. And the kids that are supporting the, uh, protesting the war and supporting the civil rights movement and those sorts of things, they're all high on drugs as well. And they're the cause of all the violence, and ipso facto comes down to drugs. Uh, it's it's all drugs. The media got on board because the media was owned and run by mostly you know white men that were part of the elite conservative establishment. They didn't want to f- change society. They like the way society is because they're the head at top of the heap. Right. If you're if you're the top of the heap, you're a rich millionaire or well-paid executive, you don't want to change society. You don't want the hippies to be successful. You don't want anyone to go, you know what? You're right. I've I've taken some peyote and I've realised you're right. Capitalism is bullshit. I don't need two cars and a house and a big house and 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 all of this stuff. It's not important. I just want, you know, to live simply. Inner peace. Peace and harmony with the people around me and, and, and explore the mysteries of... The universe, that's no way to grow an economy. (laughs) In 1970, two of Nixon's top guys, John Ehrlichman and Bud Krogh, who was another lawyer working for the Nixon White House, invited the producers of some of the most popular TV shows of the day to the White House. Oh, shit. Producers of shows like Mod Squad, General Hospital, Mission Impossible, My Three Sons, Hawaii Five-0, Andy Griffith, etc., I don't like where this and is And they going. asked the producers to start including more anti-drug stories in their programming. Er? Well, they were like, listen, we're not here to tell you what to do, but, <laughs> but if you- you're a white man. Right. You see what's happening around you. Do you want the darkies and the, the, the hippies to take over things? Hell no. <laughs> All right, so... They're being driven by drugs. Uh, you need to help us out here by putting more anti drug We need to be making the general public think that drugs are bad, okay? <laughs> and they were like, okay. <laughs> so within a few months later, that started happening and there was an increasing number of bad drug dealer, bad drug user stories happening in oh. 
top-rated TV shows across the United States. Um, the print media continued to play along as well, as we know they have all along, and Hollywood's kept making bad drug movies. Um, in March 1970, Time magazine found a 12-year-old heroin addict named Ralphie De Jesus, wow. or Ralphie De Jesus, right. um, ran a photo essay about him under the headline, Kids and Heroin, the Adolescent Epidemic. The gathering tragedy is that Ralphie is not special. Heroin, long considered the affliction of the criminal, the derelict, the debauched, is increasingly attacking America's children. Um, article went on to quote unnamed experts, saying that the number of teenage addicts in New York may mushroom fantastically to 100,000 this summer. Wow. However imprecise the figures, there is no doubting the magnitude of the change or the certitude that something frightening is sweeping into the corridors of U.S. schools and onto the pavements of America's playgrounds. Oh, my God. But the actual experts were saying, that's bullshit. <laughs> Large, multi-year studies were showing that only a very, very small percentage of American kids were using drugs. And if they were using drugs, they were mostly tobacco and alcohol. Mm. Like their parents. So again, you know, we've seen this now for decades in the drug war in the US uh, from, from the 20s right through to the 70s. The media just spilling out bullshit. Over and over, decade after decade after decade, on board with the fake war on drugs. But I have to imagine these, some of these reports being written up or, or, or put together by professionals, by very serious people. Some of that's got to be getting to the White House or to, to Nixon's staff, maybe to Nixon himself. But I've, I've got to imagine that he's got to either have access to these at some level or knows that they exist. Well, of course. He's, I mean, the White House is probably feeding these stories, like Harry Anslinger used to feed stories to the media. They're using them. It's a bit like when um, the US was ramping up to evade Iraq in 2003, right? Mm -hmm. the, the White House would leak information to journalists at the New York Times who would write these stories. We have anonymous sources that tell us that Saddam actually does have weapons of mass destruction, then the government, Bush's administration, would say, look, even the New York Times is saying oh. that they have sources that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you know, we, we, we need to do something about this. They were just circulating the same bullshit. But the other part of that is, I mean, the reports from professionals saying that it was bullshit about these claims that some government officials are making – that has to be known to some degree to Nixon's White House. I guess he's just ignoring the reports that run counter to what he wants to do or what he wants to believe. Yeah, the mainstream media and the government's ignoring the information that goes against it. It's a version of cognitive bias, I guess. Mm. Cognitive bias with a deliberate agenda. He ran on law and order. He's got to be the law and order guy. You can't run on law and order and then go, you know what? Actually, we've looked at the data. There's no problem. We need more Sorry, hugs. everyone go back to what you're doing. We need more hugs and love. Mm. Can't do it. And then in late December 1970, 
about two and a half months after I was born, Mm -hmm. Bud Krogh's phone in the White House rang. Ring, ring. Guy on the other end said, first of all, got to tell you, Cameron Riley was born. Uh, We just heard news. He's like, fucking about time. There was a star in the sky. I saw it traveling. It stopped. Yeah. (laughs) Lightning. He said, uh, the king is here. Krog said, king who? There's no kings on the president's schedule today. He goes, no, 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 not just any two-bit king. The king. The king of rock. Elvis is in the building. So Elvis had just turned up at the White House, (laughs) turned up at the gate, handed the guard a six-page letter in his own handwriting, which apparently was nearly illegible, on American Airlines stationery, (laughs) saying that he was a big admirer of the president and he wanted to help him spread his anti-drug message. And he said, look, the drug culture, the hippie elements, the SDS, the Black Panthers do not consider me as their enemy or as they call it, the establishment. He said, I call it America and I love it. I can and will do more good if I were made a federal agent at large. All I need is federal credentials. Was he high? Pretty much. (laughs) But there's other stuff going on that I'll get to as well. Okay. Now, he was apparently registered at a nearby hotel under the name John Burroughs. Sure, John. He he said, uh, look, I'm going to be here as long as it takes to get credentials of a federal agent. I have done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques, and I'm right in the middle of the whole thing where I can and will do the most good. He goes, look, I know you've got TV shows. I know you've got the media. I know you've got Hollywood, but you don't have the king. If you really (laughs) want to spread an anti-drug message... You need the king. Uh-huh. Got to have the king. Yeah. <laughs> Drugs are bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know anything about Elvis except for a couple songs. He did a little bit of teeny-weeny drugs in the past, right? Walls through a party in the county jail. People doing drugs and they fail. I mean, maybe um, all that was undercover work. What the fuck? Aren't you from the South, motherfucker? How do you not I, have I, a shrine to Elvis in your house? Before, <laughs> fuck you. My mother watches Elvis movies and Andy Griffith all day long, and my dad watches John Wayne movies all day long. But for whatever reason, and I'm being serious, but for whatever reason, with me, it didn't take. <laughs> You're not really from the South. I don't believe it. Don't buy it. This whole Southern gentleman thing is a fake. It's a con. Well, obviously so was uh, Elvis doing drugs when he was younger. It was just um, research. Like Hillary. Research. <laughs> when Hillary would campaign, all of a sudden she'd go to Arkansas and she'd get on a bit of a twang. My twang is real. I don't have a fake twang. I don't know how... Uh, how, how many drugs Elvis had done before this juncture? Right. After this juncture, <laughs> different different kettle of fish. But anyway. Sorry. He was, uh, 
He was a collector of police badges, apparently Elvis, <laughs> something he didn't mention in his letter. Um, and, and yeah, he, he was, uh, you know, he lived a life of legendary excess, probably had done a lot of drugs. Okay. But Nixon didn't know that, and um, they took the letter at face value. So at 12.30... They they ushered the king in yeah. for a meeting with the president. Um, he he presented to Nixon a gift that he'd brought with him a, a nickel plated forty five automatic complete with ammunition. Fuck! How did he get that in the white? Never That's, mind. Never mind. Different time. <laughs> different time. And honestly, if the king rocks up, yeah, packing. <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to go? Come on in, king. Sorry, king. You can't bring that in. Yeah, you're not going to tell no, the king. I, you can't. I wouldn't bring some bling. No. So there's a great photo uh, of this, a number of photos. I posted one to Facebook yesterday. You've probably seen it. Nixon dressed in a blue suit, white shirt, tie, looking like Nixon. Elvis wearing a black velvet jacket, chest hair, gold medallion, sunglasses, belt buckle as big as a dinner plate. Looks like a heavyweight champ's belt, you know, that he's wearing. <laughs> Cufflinks the size of hamsters on his sleeves. Um, Fuck yeah. He launched into a tirade against the Beatles, who he accused of being anti-American. Oh. Um, and Nixon starts saying, you know, those who use the drugs are the protesters. You know, the ones who get caught up in dissent and violence. They're the same group of young people. Elvis said, <clears throat> Mr. President, I'm on your side. I want to be helpful. I want to help get people to respect the flag because that's getting lost. Then he said, Mr. President, can you get me a badge from the Narcotics Bureau? I love badges. I love badges. And I think I can do a lot of great work if I have a badge. I have a thing for badges. Now, the story is that he'd already been to the Bureau of Narcotics the same day. Oh, wow. Who and he said, "I'm the king, like a badge, <laughs> one badge to go." And please. they were like, uh, "No, we don't give out badges. Sorry." He goes, "Well, um, how do I get my? How do I get a badge?" They go, "You'd need to go see the president." He goes, "All right, I'm on my way." He went to the. Oh, I'll be right there. Uh, so he did. <laughs> Balls out. He said, "Balls out." Gotta go. You'd have to get that directly from the president. All right then. Guess I'll go see the president. Thanks for telling. Apparently, he had offered the. The Bureau of Narcotics, $5,000 if they gave him a badge. Just listen, listen. <laughs> I'll give you, I tell you what, I got $5,000 in my pocket. I'll give it to you right now if you give me a badge. And they're like, no, no, we can't do that. So anyway, Nixon turns to Bud Krog and says, Bud, can we give him, a, can we get him a badge? And Bud Krog said, if you want to give him a badge, I'm pretty sure we can organize it. He goes, Nixon said, I'd like to do that. See that he gets one. God damn. So Elvis then does something that I don't think had ever happened in the Oval Office before. Uh-oh. He gave the president a bear hug. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Apparently, everyone was so stunned that even the official photographer didn't get a picture. Oh, no. The photographer was like, what the <laughs> fuck just happened? Nobody touches the president. Nobody bear hugs the president. Even the Secret Service were like... <laughs> We know we should probably intervene here, but, but, but the king just gave the president a bear hug, and I, 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 I can't move. If I, I'm in shock. If I lose my job, I understand. I just, I was glad I was here to see it. That's all I'm saying. 
Now, the king, obviously, doesn't fuck around. No. He's the king. He takes his job very seriously. Which job? Um, so if he's going to... Well, every job. <laughs> and if he's going to be an ambassador about the evil of drugs, right. he's going to do it right. So he went out there and made sure he took every fucking drug <laughs> that had ever been invented, usually all at once. <laughs> they got a showgirl, a chorus girl. Twice during 1973. Not once, <laughs> but twice during 1973. Elvis overdosed on barbiturates, spending three days in a coma in his hotel suite the first time. Oh, my God. Toward the end of 1973, he was hospitalised, semi-comatose, after an OD. And now, in the first eight months of 1977 alone, his doctor, George Nicopolis, or Dr. Nick... Mm -hmm. As he was known. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. Dr. Nick, this malpractice committee has received a few complaints against you. Of the 160 gravest charges, the most troubling are performing major operations with a knife and fork from a seafood restaurant. But I cleaned them with my napkin. Misuse of the cadavers. I get here earlier when I drive in the carpool lane. (laughs) There's a crazy man with a scalpel in ER. He's demanding to see a quack. Hi, everybody. Now, tell Dr. Nick where is the trouble. I'm at G. I got ants in my pants. I'm discombobulated. Give me a calmative. Slow down, sir. You're going to give yourself skin failure. Okay. Now, the symptoms you describe point to bonus eruptus. It's a terrible disorder where the skeleton tries to leap out the mouth and escape the body. No, you're talking. Our one chance is transdental electromicide. I'll need a golf cart motor with a thousand volt capacitor. Stab! Doctor, I can't in good conscience. Ah, now there's no time, man. We'll have to improvise. Keep doing that every five seconds. Dr. Nick, we owe you an apology. Consider the charges dropped. All right. God damn. <laughs> so the original, the original Dr. Nick was actually Elvis's uh, doctor. <laughs> so in the first eight months of 19... Yeah. In the first eight months of 1977 alone, he had prescribed Elvis with... Are you ready for this? Oh, I'm sitting down. 8,805 pills, tablets, vials, and injectables. God damn. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me just go over that again. From the 1st of January, 1977 to August 16th, 1977, he he wrote prescriptions for Elvis for 8,805 pills, tablets, vials, and injectables. So that's seven and a half months. Let's be generous and say eight months. Right. 8,805 divided by eight is 1,100 a month. Sure. Divided by 30, that's 36 <laughs> a day. <laughs> now, it's Tic Tacs. 
not not unreasonable when you're the king. I, I, I mean, we can't. See, the problem, Ray, is you can't measure the king's drug taking by any normal human standards. Right. Okay. The funny thing is, is that Keith Richards is the one that we normally think of when we think of drugs. Oh, my God. Elvis, he was like, Keith Richards can suck my dick, man. I, I can handle a thousand times what Keith Richards can handle. When did Elvis die? Do you know? I don't know. I'm just wondering. Yeah, um, just before that. <laughs> just after that, August 1977. It was, it was those last yeah. five pills that did it. Go, if you go back to nine, January 1975, so two and a half years, it was 19,012 prescriptions for drugs, Dr. Nick had written. Oh, my God. Now, that's someone who should go to now, jail. In, Obviously, someone who was abusing their position. Now, when Elvis died, um, for those of you who don't know or don't remember, he was found by his girlfriend um, in the bathroom. He had literally uh, fallen on the floor off the toilet, right. but he was still in the position where she, where she found him on the floor, still in the position that he would have been on sitting on the toilet. Right. So he, he had a heart attack, seized up, uh, probably just left sitting on the toilet for a while until he finally gravity pushed him off. Didn't move, like was just hunched over. Fuck. Think of you, like in a fetal position, lying on the ground. Um, uh, uh, and and the in- initial autopsy report said it was a heart attack. Um, but then there were other investigations done later that uncovered all of this stuff, the amount of drugs that he'd taken. Uh, investigators visited 153 pharmacies, spent 1,090 hours going through 6,570,175 prescriptions. Jesus. Then spent 1,120 hours organising the evidence to come up with this number of prescriptions written for Elvis. Now, the theory, one theory is... That in 1967, Elvis was making a movie, Clambake. Mm-hmm. And apparently during the making of that movie, he tripped over an electrical cord, fell and cracked his head mm. on the edge of a bathtub. He was knocked unconscious and had to be hospitalised. Right. It's suspected that he suffered from what's now known as traumatic brain injury, TBI. Mm. Not TMI, that's whenever we talk about what happened in Vegas, this is TBI. <laughs> How'd that hurt? <laughs> now, no one understood TBI at the time. It was like, oh, you got a headache, you'll be fine, right. pick yourself Here's up, some take some drugs. Pills. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the theory is that his head injury was so severe that it caused brain tissue to be jarred loose and leak into his general blood circulation. Ah. Which, which can cause autoimmune disorder, which causes a breakdown of other organs. Now, funnily enough, this happened to me. Oh, shit. In 1980 something. <laughs> three? You can't remember. Three, I think. 1983. You know, I've, you know, I've got a fractured skull and, and I'm bra- I've got brain injury in that part of my brain. No. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Exp- it explains everything you need does. to know about me. I've, I've got a brain injury. Um, I didn't know about it, so so I've got a big hole in my head. I'll, when, when I see you in a couple of weeks in Paris, right. remind me to um, get you to stick your finger in my hole, um, <laughs> and then I'll show you the hole in my skull. I've got a hole in my skull. It's right next to my left temple. Right, okay. Uh... 
Um, I can't come to the, Europe. The story is, the story <laughs> is that um, I was working at the Shotgun Club in Bundaberg, and I'm sure I've told you this story before. You were probably high at the time. I was working in the Shotgun Club when I was a teenager, like as weekend job, and I would be down in the tr- in the pit, as we called it, big hole in the ground, roof over it. Be down there. They had the big traps, the automatic traps. Well, they had manual traps and automatic traps that would shoot the clay pigeons out. And this day I was working the automatic trap. I think it was like some special weekend, big celebration. It was a trap that would hold a hundred. Uh, sorry, it was a trap. Yeah, a trap that would hold a hundred clay pigeons at a time. Mm-hmm. And I was down there with a mate of mine, and we were stacking the clay pigeons on the traps. And there, there was a break. They they were having a lunch break. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were stacking the clay pigeons. Now, the thing is, they were supposed to come and warn us before they started shooting again. They, they, they had a button they could press that would send off a little siren and flashing light in the pit. Sounds fair. They had a remote control yeah. that they would use to fire this thing. Um, but this day, they didn't warn us. And probably because they were all shit-faced what? drunk. So they... Somebody pressed the button on this trap. I was standing in front of it at the time, and this huge, heavy metal arm <sighs> flung out 350 kilometres an hour, connected with the side of my head. I was about 12, 13 at the time. Fuck. Knocked me to the ground, knocked me unconscious. My mate, who was down there, was the same age as me, maybe about it, maybe a year older, he managed to put up the flag, which was an alert signal, turned everything off, put up the flag. They got me to hospital somehow. Um, I woke up um, and, uh, yeah, so I had a fractured skull. My skull swelled up. I looked like Elephant Man, which was great for a week. I was going, I'm not an animal. Um And so, yeah, it turns out I got a fractured skull. Now, they told me at the time I was very lucky if it it had caved in my skull and if it had gone like I think it was a quarter of an inch further, a couple of millimetres further, it would have punctured my brain and, and, you know, probably would have died. But I didn't. Your whole life Um, since that moment has been a gift. I hope you cherish it. I do, Ray. I absolutely do. In fact, my theory is that I actually did die. And this, the, the, my whole life since then has been just the dream that I'm having while I'm dying. Nice. Or I'm in a coma and I'm dreaming all of this. That's why you don't uh, need either, drugs. Either way. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, that was that until I was in my mid-30s. And I had to have eye surgery. And they did a mm. brain scan, like a, 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 what do you call it, uh, an MRI on my brain. Right. And it showed that I was I, I was looking at it one day. I was showing it to my mother. And she went, oh, look, you've got brain damage. <laughs> I was like, what? And, and I do. You can see it's quite clear. There's one, one shot is all, you know, pink and gray matter in my brain. And then there's this big white area, quite a sizable <laughs> white area. And I took it to my doctor <laughs> and I said, what's that? And he goes, oh, that's brain damage. You've got substantial brain damage. Oh, my God. At the time, I just left Microsoft at the time. I think I just started the podcasting at the time, <laughs> too. Um, so there you go. <sighs> Traumatic brain injury, um, which explains everything. That's, you know, yeah. that's uh, everything you need to know about me can be summed up in that one brain scan. So anyway. For everybody going to Europe with us in a couple of weeks, I need you to talk to Cam like 
this and enunciate. It's going to be. Yeah, okay. that's why I. That's why I live in Queensland. It's the way everyone talks in <laughs> Queensland. Um, so getting back to Elvis. Yeah. So the theory is. Um, so in 1967, 68, Elvis looked looked amazing. Like uh, if you go and watch the 68 comeback yeah, special, I love that. Which I. Oh, right. He's a complete fucking god yes. badass. Big leather. Chrissy had never seen it. I showed it to her a couple of years ago. Yeah, he's complete badass. Like, if I had to go gay, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. From, apart from you. Right, they are. And Tom, Tommy Mock and um, what's-his-face who was with us in uh, Vegas and, and North Carolina. Oh, t- uh, Thomas? Tom? No, the other guy. Oh. Um, you know, uh, the Ryan, Ryan Markley. Oh, yeah, he's hard as um, fuck. It'd be Elvis in the 68 comeback special. Right. Um, so, yeah, by 68, in 68, he's looking completely smoking hot. Obviously, 10 years later, nine years later, by the time he died, he, he looked like a whale. Right. Theory is that he was suffering from this. It changed his body. Um, side effects of TBI are chronic pain, irrational behavior, severe bodily changes such as obesity and enlarged organs like heart and bowels. Wow. Um, today, it's recognized as a serious health issue for professional contact sports. And maybe, according to the lady that we had on the Alexander show, may have been something Alexander the Great suffered from uh, as well. Remember, he yes. got a blow to the head with a sword and a, cracked his helmet. Yeah. She thought maybe he suffered from it as well. Um, which which may have all led to Elvis entering this 10-year spiral where he gained weight, became crazier and crazier, addicted to painkillers, very unhealthy diet, lethargic lifestyle, sneaking in a fix wherever he could. Anyway, on the day that he died of a heart attack, probably brought on by consuming copious quantities of drugs, mm-hmm. at the age of 42... In 1977, in his pocket was a badge saying that he was a special assistant in the Bureau of Narcotics (laughs) and Dangerous Drugs. I I don't know how to respond. Speaking of Elvis, news in today, 15th of June, uh, 2018, Elvis's drummer, DJ Von Tanner, Mm -hmm who played on Blue Suede Shoes, Heartbreak Hotel, and Hound Dog, died today, age 87. Wow. According to his son, my dad passed away in his sleep at 9.33 tonight. He was very comfortable with no pain. I'll post more tomorrow when I have more information. We ask for privacy at this time. Played with Elvis for over 14 years on over 460 tracks. Jailhouse Rock, Heartbreak Hotel, Hound Dog, Blue Suede Shoes. He was uh, on the Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan appearance with Elvis, the famous one. He also was in the on the 68 comeback special. Um, so there you go. What a fucking life, yeah. man. In the first rock and roll drummer. That's incredible. Depending on how you want to define the beginning of rock and roll. Sure. Um, just to wrap up, a uh, number of Americans who died in 1970 from legal and illegal drugs, 1,899. Number who died from the flu, 3,707. Number of prescriptions for psychoactive drugs written in 1970, so legal drugs, 214 million. Wow. 
Most of those were for Elvis, of course, but the rest were for the rest of the population. <laughs> Amount spent by Americans on legal spirits, wine and beer, $24 billion, and the estimated size of the illegal drug market in 1970 was a mere $2 billion. Um. I do have one stat I wanted to share. There's a guy named Dan Bown who who's written several books on uh, history of drugs. He wrote an article, for, I think it was for Harper's, and he said between 2001 and 2014, deaths from heroin overdose rose 500% in the United States. But in that same time, deaths from prescription drugs, legal and regulated, rose 300%. So, obviously, America has a long way to go wow. to try to. Uh, yeah, we have to. We have a, so basically, we don't deal with our prescription drugs much better than we deal with heroin. So, if we are going to decriminalize drugs, that's nice. That's good. That's a step in the right direction. But that is that is only a part. That is a drop in the bucket compared to dealing with drugs that are right now legal and that are meant to help people. So, America has a long way to go in dealing with with our problem, legal and otherwise, when it comes to drugs. Yeah, Dan Baum's book, uh, Smoke and Mirrors, um, I used for a lot of today's research. Uh, great book, really, really good books. Quite old now, uh, came out in the early 70s, but it's a great book on, um, you know, Nixon and mm -hmm. the drug war. Right. All right, I want to read a review before we go. This is from the United States, Faux Bolo H., uh, says, uh, a unique take on what is going on in the world, very current with views expressed which try to go behind the surface. Not right, not left, just in the messy middle. Well worth a listen. Thanks, yeah, Faux Bolo thank H. Send us an email with your address and we'll send you a token of our appreciation. That's all the reviews. Got some um, new uh, subscribers, though, I want to give a shout-out to. Uh, John Kimball, Peter Gillespie, Kevin Levitt, Erica Chris, Steve Bedell, Donna James, Kevin Cunningham, Jade Ruihu, uh, Mara Lee Nelda, Mac Christian, Brett Jones, Barry Thomas, Christopher Retenius, Rick Owen, Alexander Jackson, John Hegarty. Mm. Uh, Haggerty. I think those are the new nice. ones since our last show. Thank you Welcome for aboard. your support. Yes. Welcome aboard, kids. Um, and that is that. We will be back. Uh, it might be a little while before we're back mm -hmm. because we're going to Europe for our tour. Don't know if we're going to get a chance to do any specific uh, war on drugs thing, unless we take a lot of drugs in Europe. Maybe we can talk about that. Yeah, We'll redo the Elvis experiment. So we might there might be a lag of a couple of weeks or something before our next episode is out, but we will definitely be out with new episodes in late July, early August. So we don't don't go anywhere. And as a tribute to the King yes. and his drummer DJ Vontana, I want to go out with this. That's all right for you. That's all 